this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. This is the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub. I'm Whitney Terrell, and joining me is my co-host, Sugi Ganeshanathan. We'll be discussing Colin Kaepernick and the Take a Knee movement with the writers Matt Gallagher and Britt Bennett. And because this is Literary Hub, we believe that nearly every issue that shows up on your Twitter feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in fiction, poetry, or nonfiction. So in each episode of the FNF Podcast, we'll bring you at least three pieces of writing you won't hear about on CNN. There'll be works of literature chosen to shed light on the subject at hand. Today, that's Colin Kaepernick's protest against police brutality and racial discrimination. Sugi, what are we reading? Thanks, Wit. Today we'll be discussing the 2012 novel Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk by Ben Fountain, the essay My Body, My Weapon, My Shame by Elwood Reed, collected in the 1998 Best American Sports Writing, and the 2016 novel The Mothers by Britt Bennett. A lot has been said about Kaepernick and his decision to uh, take a knee during the national anthem to protest police brutality and how that action has spread out throughout the NFL. Um, and in a minute, we're going to talk to Matt Gallagher, an Iraq war veteran and author, about his take. Uh, but first, a public service announcement. I know that you and I both feel that a lot of what the actual protest is about has been lost in recent days. So this is a reminder for those of you who keep saying that you don't understand why players like Eric Reed and Colin Kaepernick are protesting or people who keep asking, what's the issue? Like my Archie Bunker afternoon sports talk show host here in Kansas City. So here's the issue that Colin Kaepernick said he was protesting. In 2015, 995 people were fatally shot by police. 94 of them were unarmed. Of those 94, 38 were black, 19 were Hispanic, and 32 were white. In 2016, 963 people were shot and killed by police. 48 were armed. Of those, 17 were black, 18 were Hispanic, and 22 were white. So far in 2017, 737 people have been shot and killed by police, which is 15 more than were killed by police at this time last year. 32 of those people were unarmed. Of those 10 were black, 8 Hispanic, and 13 white. These figures all come from the Washington Post database on police shootings. That's 2,695 people shot by police since 2015, according to the Post. 174 were unarmed. 100 of them were black or Hispanic. This unarmed figure does not include people like Freddie Gray of Baltimore who died in police custody or people holding toy guns like 12-year-old Tamir Rice who was shot and killed by police in Cleveland in 2014. In the last three years, according to these statistics, police have killed more unarmed black and Hispanic people than white people. 
Overall, in 2015, when you account for the relative size of their populations, the Post determined the blacks were two and a half times more likely to be fatally shot by police than whites. So that's the issue. Now we're going to talk about what some some other people think is the issue, namely that by kneeling during the national anthem, Colin Kaepernick, and more recently, some large portion of the NFL are disrespecting the military and the flag. And for that, we're going to talk to Matt Gallagher, a former Army captain and Iraq veteran, and the author of the terrific 2016 novel, Youngblood. Matt, welcome to the first episode of the FNF podcast. Uh, Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. Uh, Really, really glad to be here. Matt, it's great to have you here. The first book we're looking at today as a way into these protests is Ben Fountain's Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk. That book was published in 2012. You were already a published author by then, but the novel itself is probably set right around the time that you were in the Army. So I'm wondering if you could give us some background on your time in Iraq and maybe tell us when you first became aware of the book. Sure. Uh, I served in the Army from uh, 2005 to 2009 uh, and spent uh, 15 months in Iraq uh, during the surge. Uh, my first book, uh, Kaboom, uh, grew out of a blog that I kept over there uh, during that time uh, until it got shut down by my colonel. And yeah, Kaboom was kind of a chronicle of, of the lives and times of, of one scout platoon uh, stationed in a, a small sectarian desert town. And, you know, it seems quaint to say now, but you know, this was when the war seemed to be doing okay or maybe even turning around. Kaboom, the book uh, came out in 2010, but when it did, you know, there was still this kind of real question of if and when there'd uh, be any literary fiction about these wars. Two years later, uh, Ben Fountain did, did just that uh, with, uh, with a resounding, resounding success. Uh, you know, I think Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk is, is just brilliant. Yeah, so I was actually in, in Iraq in 2006 and 2010, and I, in 2010 I felt exactly the way that you're describing. Um, and I remember reading Billy Lynn uh, when it came out and thinking, wow, what a brilliant idea for a book. I mean, it's this a uh, group of soldiers who've committed a heroic act in Iraq, but who are then brought back to the States to go on a sort of publicity tour for the war, in essence. Um, and most of the book takes place uh, at Dallas Cowboys Stadium, where they're going to appear in a, in a halftime show. You know, I, I found it to be more of a homecoming book than anything else. Um, right. And uh, just kind of uh, a, a glimpse at, you know, just kind of how absurd post-9-11 American society had become in it, in its kind of relationship to to the military and 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 to uh, the foreign wars being being fought in our, our collective name, uh, it, you know it's it's sucked me in straight away as I read it. I remember the you know kind of the sense of dislocation that that Fountain conjures through the soldiers and and the, the Billy Lynn character specifically. Uh, I mean, were was, you feeling like, was, that? Did you did oh, other totally. veterans sort of respond to the book in that way? Yeah, I mean, it was like he was in my head when I when I'd come home a, a couple years before, and and the book kind of spread like wildfire uh, through the through the you know the literary veterans community, uh, as I recall. You know, I mean, football and war and a, a, a Beyonce halftime show. I mean, who 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 wouldn't want to read that book? I'm gonna just read a little bit from the book here, and this part seems sort of perfect in light of what you're what we're talking about. This is from the national anthem scene, which is around page 208. Never do Americans sound so much like a bunch of drunks as when celebrating the end of their national anthem. In the midst of all the boozy clapping and cheering, perhaps a dozen middle-aged women converge on Billy. For a second, it seems they'll tear him limb from limb. Their eyes are cranking those crazy lights, and there is nothing they wouldn't do for America. Torture, nukes, worldwide collateral damage. For the sake of God and country, they're down for it all. Isn't it wonderful? The realtress cries as she holds him tight. 
Don't you love it? Doesn't it make you just so proud? Well, right this second he wants to weep. That's how desperately proud he feels. Does that count? So, Matt, I was wondering, you know, when you're at a sporting event and the anthem plays or there's an honor the troops moment like the one that Fountain describes a couple different times in the book, you know, what do you feel like? Uh, it's a whole a whole mess of things, right? Which uh, I think any thinking person um, should. Uh, uh, you know, I'm not one for ceremony, but uh, I can understand and appreciate ceremony's importance in the society. But you know, what point does does that ceremony become more important than what it's supposed to be re- representing in the first place? You know, we live in a society and time when it's it's so much easier to to hear the anthem and and to look touched and then yell America. Um, than it is to consider that you know American ideals are, are much more than a, a song or, or a piece of cloth, and uh, you know are we living living up to those ideals? You know I, I don't think it's I don't think it's good. Uh, you know it's not healthy that the spectacle of it all seems to have outsized anything and everything else. Uh, you know a, a common pushback uh, against these uh, these football players' protests is that they I, well I don't want I don't want politics mixing in with my sports. Well, what else? What what else would you call um, uh, 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 trying to get everybody to stand uh, and do the same thing while a giant ass American flag is covering an entire football field? That's that's very political. Well, and then uh, also more recently, a giant ass American flag that's been paid for by the military, sort of like an advertisement to put there, right? I mean, we've discovered that this has been part of a program by the Department of Defense in the last few years. Right, right, and it's it's uh, it's very troubling. And uh, uh, before that, before that program, football players weren't even out for the national anthem. It was they, they stayed they stayed in stayed in their locker rooms to prepare for the game. Uh, you know, I think it's uh, vital that um, you know thinking citizens remember that uh, uh, anything that that about our country or about our military is inherently political, and that you know that uh, if if we start thinking that a return to quote unquote normal. Uh, uh, looks like looks like that with you know F-16s flying above uh, 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 football stadiums every Sunday. Um, uh, we're, we've lost something. We've lost something. So um, why is it that the anthem is associated with the military? You know, I mean, I've been talking to people about this. For me, that just never. I was surprised when this became part of the discussion because uh, you know my father and grandfather were both in the military. Um, they never associated the anthem with the military, at least when they spoke to me. You know, I mean, no one in my family has served in the military. And I don't think I think the first time that I heard the anthem was at school. So for a long time, I associated it with learning American history specifically. I associated it with with school and not with sports the same way that I thought about the Pledge of Allegiance. I thought about it as a part of learning, learning history. I don't know when this changed because the anthem and the flag are they're for every American citizen, right? They're, they're not just a, a representation of the military and, and they can and should mean a multitude of things for, for each of us. Um, uh, a, a veteran friend of mine, uh, Peter Lucher, uh, wrote on Twitter recently, you know, veterans are not arbiters of patriotism, you know, stop using us as, you know, stop using us as such, you know, me, I, I don't think I'd ever kneel myself, um, basically because you know my, my grandfather was an immigrant from Belfast who who came to this country and became an admiral in the navy, um, and, and and this nation made a lot of things possible for our family that that no other place could. But 
And that's not every American family's story. And, and we need to be honest about that. And, and it, I don't know, it, it seems like the people kneeling right now have, have put a lot of more thought into why they are than, than a lot of people standing. And, uh, you know, they want a better America. They want a, a more just America. They want a more honest America. Um, they're so, I mean, the- peacefully, peacefully and silently in pursuit of that. Like, what, what thinking person couldn't respect that? You know, you're gonna you're gonna find vets that uh, feel every which way about this issue, and 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 that's um, uh, that's good. That's healthy, right? That that uh, uh, make your case uh, that everybody should be standing for the anthem, uh, but you know, leave us out of it, right? We're not a, we're not a monolith for your shitty your shitty logic. So for me, the I, I feel sort of I sort of agree with you in the sense that I feel like the anthem is like a it's the people's song, right? I don't know. I, it it frustrates me that one group should be claiming the song. I don't feel like you're claiming it, you know. But you know, reacting to and messing around with the anthem is kind of an assertion, an assertion of citizenship. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. when I was a kid, I played Jimi Hendrix's version of the Star Spangled Banner on my electric guitar. It was one of the first things I learned. We all thought it was really cool, and I understood also that he was challenging the the ways of thinking about the anthem and that he was speaking to the Vietnam War. That was all part of the deal. We all thought, we all understood that, you know. Um, and so for me, I feel like the kneeling is in that tradition of, you know, improvisation, mutation and change. And it was a way for those of those uh, players to assert their citizenship rather than reject it or disrespect the flag. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Yeah, and Andy, you already have mentioned uh, the paid patriotism and planned displays featuring the military that, you know, last year the NFL agreed to pay some, I think, $723,000 back. And so there's been some auditing of this by, you know, by elected officials. People, the people's representatives have talked about this and come to a conclusion on it. And money is money is going back um, sort of in the taxpayers' coffers where it, where it belongs. But... It's so, I mean, a huge part of this political environment for me is to t- sort of think um, with every step we take towards something that seems more authoritarian, you know, the anthem, through that advertising, the nature of the anthem seems to have changed for a lot of people, not for me, but for a lot of people. And I wonder what it would take to return it to what you guys are both talking about. I don't know, how do you go back to getting more people to think of it as not a military song? but a people's song. It's easy to think always the worst case, but I will say at least in terms of public discussion in Kansas City as a representative place for middle America, you know, there have been some sort of very stubborn reactions by people in the media, but there also have been a lot of real discussion about this. I feel like these protests have had that effect of forcing people to think about, well, what is it actually, what does this anthem mean? And what is it, what is his purpose? And also to confront and deal with the issue that you and I talked about at the beginning with police brutality and, and, uh, and, and shootings, right? I mean, that has become a real object of discussion here in a way that it never was before. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm in Brooklyn and I'm, I'm, I'm seeing a lot of that too, just kind of pushing back and, and, and saying, no, this is not, uh, uh we reject, 
this polarized worldview, right? That it's that, that it's us or them. That that Trump is definitely angling for, right? You know, he's it's it's like he's trotting out Nixon's greatest culture war hits, uh, and and uh, <laughs> he's trying he's trying to replay them, trying to remix them. On my better days, I I, I try to seek out and and, and try to be impressed by uh, the nuanced, thoughtful. Um, uh, discussion that's taking place out there. I mean, one example, there's a, a Dale Hansen, I think is his name, is, is kind of this big, uh, very famous Dallas sports broadcaster. Uh, uh, and, uh, you know, I'd encourage listeners to seek out his his five-minute five segment on this. You know, I, I try to try to go to bed watching stuff like that uh, with, you know, at least uh, maybe a, a, drop of, a drop of optimism. So that's uh, how I'm supposed to imagine you going to sleep at night is listening to this Dallas <laughs> sportscaster really that, loud. That's, that's one. That's one option. That's one option. <laughs> All right. So, I mean, in addition to being sort of a replay of Nixon's greatest hits, you know, Billy Lynn is a novel that seems to directly anticipate this intersection of football, celebrity, and patriotism that we're talking about, and that Donald Trump accessed when he criticized the players, you know, last week. Um, it's all there, you know including the giant halftime show, which, as we've discussed, was probably paid for by the military. The one thing that's different in the, is the subject of racial division, because in Billy Lynn, Beyonce's still a member of Destiny's Child. It's pre-formation, pre-lemonade. She's, all, she's participating in the spectacle like everybody else. And it's hard to imagine a black artist doing an all-out Apollo Creed, patriotic, wrap-me-in-the-flag show like that, say, for instance, this year. Or is it? I mean, Beyonce did in real life perform at the 2016 Super Bowl and she did a routine from Formation and she dropped that single the previous day. Her video was seen as supportive of Black Lives Matter and her dancers were in Black Panther outfits. Yeah, and I kind of think that's going to be like the end of that. (laughs) I mean, I think they're not going to invite her or someone like that who might do that again. It would be my prediction. Uh, You know, like I think Justin Timberlake's going to be, they already announced this maybe yesterday that Timberlake's going to be the new. Uh, the guy for next year. I wouldn't underestimate Timberlake. <laughs> He's got his be nice. That would be nice. Um, I think at this juncture, maybe I will read this line from Billy's sister, Kat, on page 95 of Billy Lynn's. You know what's funny? She said, everybody around here is such a major conservative till they get sick, get screwed over by their insurance company, their job goes over to China or whatever. Then they're like, ooh, what happened? I thought America was just the greatest country ever, and I'm such a good person. Why is all this terrible shit happening to me? Does this basically describe future Trump voters? And did Trump voters determine that the answer to the question was that their problems were caused by immigrants and people of color? Yeah, that, I mean, that makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, you know, Billy Lynn uh, is set and, and was written and published uh, at a time, you know, before we'd left Iraq, um, you know, before we'd seen ISIS uh roll in to that country before we, we, we'd seen that kind of the outbreak of the, the Syrian civil war. So, you know, the, the, the legacy of Iraq was still very much up in the air. Um, and yet, you know, that, that anger uh, that, that Kat describes that we've seen in the media post-election ad nauseum uh, was still there. It was still potent. And then, you know, because of what happened, Iraq, ISIS, Syria, uh, Afghanistan continuing to go on, uh, it's it's almost like that anger Kat's describing there has been ex- exacerbated, right? It, it's it's something else to point to, right? The the, the America, the, the sanitized America, and that's referenced in in these nostalgia dreams, doesn't lose wars. It you know it it, it doesn't make things worse. Uh, uh, it uh, it it does makes things better. It helps people, 
right? Which, you know, anybody paying attention in history class knows it's a lot more layered and complex than that. But, you know, it, it, it seems like it's just one more thing to point to along with, you know, the loss of coal, uh, you know, along with the, the, you know, these mysterious jobs going, you know, going to undocumented workers, et cetera. I mean, I know, I know that some of the guys that I, uh, when I was embedded in Iraq, you know, I had a one particular friend, he, was, he just got back from, I think his like, it's either his fifth or sixth tour. I mean, he was in Kuwait, he was wounded in Afghanistan, he was in Iraq like three or four times. You know, when Trump was a candidate, uh, he said to me, well, I know one thing, if Trump uh, gets elected, we're going to get to go back in Iraq and do a little cray cray. Now, that's a soldier's way of saying... Like he, uh, that sounds like aggressive and mean, but what he really meant was, you know, he was incredibly upset by the rise of ISIS, you know, and the appearance of these terrorists in territory that he had sort of personally fought for and worked really hard to like make livable for the civilians who were there. It wasn't, he didn't decide to have the war. He just had to fight the war and then to do all that work and then have it taken away from you is really difficult. Like, I don't think we're grappling as a country with like the emotional effect that has on people. No, we're not. I mean, because, you know, the vast majority of the country was never invested to begin with. And, and, uh, you know, I think a lot of it goes back to kind of the implementation of the all volunteer force uh, by President Nixon, right? And, and I mean, if you, I, I read the, the everything goes proposal. back to Nixon. <laughs> it does, it does. <laughs> uh, or too too many things, at least. Um, you know, the, the the proposal was drafted by this professor named Martin Anderson at Columbia, and it's a deeply, deeply cynical uh, uh, proposal. Uh, but it but it played out this way, right? Because um, uh, by not having everyday American citizens invested in the military, uh, you know, with, with their sons and daughters, they're not really invested in, in the, you know, the, the use of our armed force, uh, armed forces abroad as, as part of foreign policy, right? I mean, how, you know, in what other situation could Afghanistan be, be dragging on into, into year 17, right? I mean, there's, there's, I'm from, I'm from the suburbs, right? Uh, if, if, if there was even the, the possibility of a, of a draft still, uh, you know, soccer moms would be rioting. So, so I, I, and I just want to break in there and say, like, I think that is why people are so upset about the anthem, because I feel like there is what what those scenes for um, honoring the military at sporting events is a way for people who did not have children who were involved in that war, who were not themselves involved in it, to expiate their guilt for having sent soldiers there for so long and then let them come back and um, and being uninvolved in that military effort. It's the easy way of getting rid of the guilt that you feel for that. And that's why people yeah. don't want it, want to fight for it and want it not to be taken away because it has to do with their release from guilt. Does that make sense? It does. And it, it, I, think it, I think you're right and it's deeply frustrating because, you know, you know, for me, like I'm, I'm married to a, a New York City public school teacher, right? I mean, I, I think what she does day in and day out is very patriotic, right? I, I'd love to see teachers honored, honored at halftime of these games. You know the, the the way vets in the military are social workers, bus drivers who deal with the very worst of humanity day in and day out, right? I mean, there's so many ways, different ways of 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 giving back, of of you know, defining patriotism, of of, of exhibiting it, um, that it's become so simplified into um, uh, into soldiering in the military uh, uh, in a time when you know less than one half of one percent of the country serves. It, it's, it's just really, really worked. 
I know that um, we thought about having you talk a little bit about kneeling as a specific nuanced gesture and how that sort of plays in a military context, um, how it is rendered in Youngblood. In Youngblood, which, which is set during the uh, American withdrawal from Iraq uh, in 2011, so a few years after I was there myself, uh, a small group of soldiers are, are surrounded by a crowd of, of angry Iraqi civilians um, who, who were justified in, in their rage, I, I should note, and, and, and they're closing in. Um, you know, there's violence in the air and, and the very real possibility of, of blood and riot. Um, and, you know, the soldiers are asking, you know, do we fire into the approaching crowd to, to save ourselves? Uh, you know, the, the book has a kind of a Machiavellian antihero uh, who gives that very order. Um, but then a, a quiet sort of rebellion takes place instead, and, and the other soldiers start taking a knee. Um, they don't view it as kneeling um, based on based on their their military training. Um, you know, they're, they're doing they're taking a knee in respect to to the Iraqis' anger. Uh, you know, it's not stooping, it's not kneeling. It's it's just really understanding that power and control are are really malleable things, um, even for soldiers with guns being confronted by by civilians with rocks. That seems like a wonderful place for us to leave it. Matt, um, thanks for coming on. I do want to recommend everybody that uh, Youngblood, which I think is a really terrific novel. Um, and we hope you'll come back to the FNF podcast soon. Appreciate the, uh, the smart discussion, guys. Take care. Thanks so much. You too. Okay, our next guest is Britt Bennett. Uh, Britt is the author of the New York Times bestselling novel, The Mothers. She's also a graduate of the MFA program at the University of Michigan, where I used to teach and where the Elwood Reed essay, My Body, My Weapon, My Shame, which we referenced in the beginning from the 1998 Best of American Sports Writing, is canon of sorts because, as we mentioned, uh, Elwood Reed played football at the University of Michigan. Britt, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Um so happy to have you here. And I think especially we were just talking a little bit before about the fact that you actually taught this essay. And I thought of you and your novel in particular in connection with these protests, because the book is set in California in a black church where the pastor's son, Luke, is briefly a football star and has these big dreams and where a major influence on the local community is Camp Pendleton. So there is also a distinct influence of the military on the community. And the novel is a story of three friends, Nadia, Aubrey, and Luke, who grow up um, in that black church. And Luke is involved with both of them. And he's still in town in part because he got injured playing football and he can't play anymore. In thinking about the Elwood Reed essay, I can't help but connect that kind of loss of physical, the loss, the loss of one's body to sport. You know, Luke's this really talented football player who has had his career uh, cut short through just sort of this freak accident on the field. And when you meet him in the story, he's trying to adjust to life after football. Um, And he's kind of working at this really terrible restaurant and and trying to figure out who he is now that the football's over. Um, So I I think this novel is in a large parts about loss. And I was really drawn to the idea of Nadia, who at the beginning of the book has just lost her mother very tragically, um, sort of connecting to Luke, who's experienced a very different type of loss, but has also uh, lost the life that he thought he would be living and lost it at a very young age. So there's this passage uh, about the end of Luke's career as a football player from the book. Uh, She and everyone at the upper room had watched his promising sophomore season end last year. A routine kick return, a bad tackle, and his leg broke, the bone cutting clear through his skin. 
The commentators had said he'd be lucky if he walked normal again, let alone played another down, so no one had been surprised when San Diego State pulled his scholarship. I find it so horrible that they can do that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I kept thinking when I was thinking about describing that injury, I know somebody asked me, there's, there's a part later where people are watching the video of his injury, um, and somebody asked me later, like, do people really do that? And I'm like, yeah, people have this morbid fascination with these really gross oh, yeah. uh, sports injuries. I, I know my uh, my parents were actually at the basketball game where Paul George, I think, like had this really nasty injury. Oh. And people love watching those things. It's it's really gross. I'm very squeamish, so I can't do it. Were you, yeah. were you, uh, did you play sports growing up or in uh, high school? No, <laughs> no, I'm small and unathletic, so definitely no sports. <laughs> So, all right, so how did you, you know, research or think about, you know, sports uh, when you were trying to write the, the Luke character? Right. I mean, I think it was easier for me because at the point at which you meet Luke, the football is sort of over. So he's kind of dealing with uh, the aftermath of that. But I think really that character kind of emerged from a lot of these uh, older guys I kind of knew around town who, you know, and you knew them in high school when they were sort of the big man on campus and they were these big football stars and then for you know whatever reason their football career kind of fizzles um and later you just see them kind of loafing around town or you know just kind of working these these jobs um and sort of becoming kind of a shell of themselves and i think it's it's easy to kind of mock those those types of uh of men but I wanted to take this sort of character, this guy who's kind of this washed up athlete and, and humanize him and really focus on the fact that this is a young guy who feels like he's lost everything. There's this section of the book where he joins a local team and he finds some of the same elements that I associate with, you know, say the Reed essay there, the violence and also the camaraderie, um, some of the attitudes about women, um, some of that, what happens in that section, and I'm trying purposely to avoid spoilers here a little bit, um, so surprising and true in that it demonstrates to me the ways that athletic culture replicates itself outside of athletics. One day I was just at the park by my parents' house and I saw this bus from this like local football team and I didn't know that was a thing or that there would be like a bus. So I looked it up and realized that this was a thing that people do, um, people who, are, who don't want to let football go for whatever reason. Um, and there was something so sad to me about Luke kind of joining a group like that and and finding the the friendship in a way and the sort of this brotherhood that he misses. Um, but a lot of those guys are they're so bitter and, and they're really mean because they feel like they've been cheated out of this life that they wanted to have. I mean, that that idea of belonging seems so important. You know, I mean, there is a part in, in Reed's essay where he says, I do bad things because I want to belong. You know, and that's the thing that to connect it back to the Kaepernick protests, you know, people saying like, oh, he's an entitled athlete, this and that. But I don't think people understand how gutsy it was for him to stick out from the group in that way. Yeah, I, I keep thinking about uh, why football, uh, the, the fact that this huge sort of culture war is waging um, on a football field versus another sport. And I also just kept coming back to the idea of, you know, football team is a lot larger than a basketball team, for example, or other sports. And also on a football field, you don't see somebody's face. So there's sort of this anonymity uh, with uh, people's faces being covered in helmets. Uh, there is this kind of illusion, I guess, that these are all kind of just an undistinguished mass of a team. 
Um, and I think by Kaepernick's uh, sort of sticking out in that way, he became an individual and in a sport where often we try to sort of elide individuality. Um, and I think that's why it's telling that sort of the counter, uh, maybe the counter counter protest to Kaepernick has been these shows of unity, uh, which kind of erases that individuality that he created for himself. I mean, the military is another place where you're not really supposed to be an individual, you know. Right. And so I thought a lot about um, Bosugi and I thought a lot about uh, Nadia's father. You know, I mean, what would he think about it? He's religious. He's conservative. He's concerned with honor. He was a Marine. I mean, did you know a lot of military people growing up? Yeah, you know, I have I have veterans in my family, um, but my parents didn't serve. I don't have siblings have served, so I always had this kind of weird insider outsider experience growing up in a military town uh, without current members of my family actively serving. Um, and I also lived there, you know, during 9/11 and the Afghanistan and Iraq wars. Um, and I'm still kind of thinking over. Uh, I think all of the NFL protests have caused me to think how my views of patriotism have been shaped through that experience uh, of living in a military town in a time in which um, patriotism was certainly demanded. What would Luke think? I mean, these are obviously <laughs> sort of fun speculative conversations, but I can't help but sort of try to to think about the characters that I know and sort of imagine, you know, Luke watching a football game now and. <laughs> What would what would that guy do? I want to know. Oh God, I don't know. I think Luke. I think Luke would understand the nature of the protest, but I cannot imagine Luke taking a knee. I don't think he would be willing to put his career on the line um, in that way. And it's also, of course, you know, we're we're sort of not touching on something that is prevalent in the read essay, and that's also, or that's obvious in the read essay, and that's also. You know, part of football in the military, which are that these are cultures dominated by men. And yeah, I mean, I think it's that's all the sort of gendered aspect of it is really interesting because on one hand, I've seen conversations that have sort of criticized the hypocrisy of people who are outraged by how Colin Kaepernick has been treated, but are not similarly outraged by the fact that the NFL employs uh, domestic abusers and rapists. Um, so there's that sort of aspect, and then there's also the aspect of female athletes really. Um, putting themselves on the line and, and having a lot more to risk, honestly, um, than a lot of these male athletes. So whether it's the WNBA players who have been really outspoken, um, players who are black and white, and or whether it's uh, Megan Rapino, who's on the women's national soccer team, who was the first white athlete to, to take yeah. a knee last year. Um, so there's a way in which the, these women who, again, make way less money, have less security, have put themselves on the line and have sort of been ignored um, in the conversation of, of athletes protesting. And maybe also have been ignored in sort of a military context. I mean, wait, you wrote you know, a book about a woman who belongs to the military, and I feel like I haven't really seen that voice that represented in this conversation either. Yeah, it's, yeah, very, sure. yeah, it's very similar. I mean, in The Good Lieutenant, you know, uh, one of the most important factors in the novel is that Emma Fowler, that main character, is, you know, she's an outsider by definition. And so in a way, um, an outsider, and I think this is true of female athletes, um, they have to learn the organization better than the people for whom it comes naturally, who it's built for, right? So a female soldier really knows the army, has to really think about what it means to exist in that culture and how to operate in that. In that sense, they they become interesting critics of that culture, and they're willing to criticize it more than men, I think. And yet I think, you know, sort of, again, like perhaps a black athlete, they're in greater jeopardy doing it. People talk, as you mentioned, as though 
Colin Kaepernick is spoiled and there's this conflation of race and class, the idea that because he's made a certain amount of money as an NFL player, you know, leaving aside the, the question of the fact that he doesn't have a job right now, the idea that, you know, can a rich man suffer from racism, which still seems to be a, a concept that's beyond the grasp of a certain number of white Americans. You know, Jelani Cobb had a really great piece about this in The New Yorker, um, where he talks about how ungrateful is the new uppity. <laughs> and, um, you know, I think it's something that I, I keep coming back to this sort of question of gratitude, because, again, we know how dangerous this game is. Um, you know, I think last week I read that Darren Sproles, who plays for the Eagles, uh, tore his ACL and broke his arm on the same play. And, you know, it's like that's the end of his season, if not his career, um, because he was nearing retirement anyway. So not even to mention CTE and, and and, you know, the brain damage that these guys are suffering. So the idea that these NFL players who are risking, who are literally risking their lives and their physical health every time they step on the field um, and are making money for billionaire owners are ungrateful is really crazy. and I don't know, I think to me it, it's, it speaks to this larger belief that white people earn the things they have, but black people are just given it. Yeah, and you know, then I'm reminded also of, right, the fact that uh, black Americans are over, proportionally overrepresented in the military, overrepresented uh, represented in higher numbers among enlisted personnel than as commissioned officers, that there's a lot of debate over the racialization of the position of quarterback. And I remember, um, I think it was Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, who I quite like as a writer. Um, <laughs> and he was sort of saying, you know, you can tell me that that I'm an athlete and I shouldn't have opinions or I shouldn't have smarts, but kind of good luck to you. We're also talking yeah. about a, a league that has 70% black players right. and majority white owners. I was sitting with my dad one time watching a game and he just started rattling off the top of his head the teams that have played a black quarterback and the ones that haven't like throughout NFL history and just knew um, and was saying like, he's like, I refuse to root for a team that has never had a black quarterback or a black coach or black people in a position of leadership. Um, so that's what I think has been like, uh, you know, kind of frustrating about the unity thing, like this idea of Jerry Jones kneeling with his players. I mean, it, it really just felt felt like, you know, these billionaires are upset that Donald Trump tried to tell them what to do. It's not about anything that uh, that Colin Kaepernick was originally um, protesting. It really felt like that type of a show of, you know, we'll show him, we can do what we want. The NFL is supposed to appeal to the most people possible, right? Yeah. So they had an opportunity, I think, to really sort of focus on the social justice aspect of this. And there seemed like there was that opportunity last weekend um, when the owners joined the players on the field, but they seem to have really backed away from it this week. You know, you start to think, okay, they, they, they're trying to get out of this as quickly as possible because they're not instinctively supportive of the yeah. Colin Kaepernick protest, which is unfortunate. Well, I mean, this would be a great opportunity, you know, for them yeah. to be better people, I guess. I don't know. Why would yeah. you expect that would happen? But, you know, it's possible. Well, I think it- it's also just, I just keep circling back to the absurdity that Colin Kaepernick's message is somehow divisive. Um, you know, the idea that saying, you know, it's, just, it's the same, it's the same thing. The fact that black lives matter is a controversial statement. You know, this idea of saying that unarmed black people should not be 
executed by police officers, the idea that that is considered something divisive, so then the countermeasure to it is to unify. But, like, to unify in on behalf of what or to unify against what? I think it's there's become this weird... Like, everything is sort of metaphor and symbol now, and we can't agree what those metaphors and symbols mean. So the idea of, you know, the, the cowboys kneeling before the anthem and then standing up during it, when that happened, I went on Twitter and, like, like Make America Great Again Twitter was, like, outraged that they knelt, period. And then, like, Black Twitter was upset that they didn't kneel during the anthem, but they knelt before it. <laughs> and there's this sense of nobody really understanding or agreeing. It's like we're talking about this topic, but we're all using different language and different terms. And we're not agreeing what anything really means anymore. Yeah, people just go to their corners. Although I would say, I mean, you know, uh, on the optimistic side, I would point out there have been some examples of black and white athletes being unified about this. I thought that, you know, our quarterback in Kansas City, Alex Smith, gave a great statement about this last yeah. weekend. Um, and, you know, I think there have been other examples of that. And those things are the things that I gravitate to is like the, the best spirit of what America is sure. supposed to be about. Yeah, I think <laughs> it's funny. I wonder if wait, maybe you're the optimist in this podcast. Um, <laughs> as, yeah, as I'm, I'm the, I'm the <laughs> James McPherson optimist, if possible. Um, yeah, which Wit and I are. Wit and I became friends through through our our mutual teacher, um, James James Allen McPherson, who I I gotta say I would I would love to know what Jim would say about say about what's going on right now you know you've got Colin Kaepernick really starting this national conversation um and yet at the same time you know we've got mainstream media organizations what was it it was Sports Illustrated that got this has this cover of all of these athletes and I think a couple owners arms linked Colin Kaepernick is not on that cover what what do they think they're achieving yeah, I don't even know what that is. Um, I think, you know, Steph Curry said as much with him, like, linking arms with Roger Goodell and, you know, this idea that, again, it sort of is the all lives mattering of this unity um, thing when, in fact, you know, it's like we should be united and say that police brutality is bad. I just, it's baffling to me that that is considered something controversial, that there are multiple sides of that conversation. Um, and that, you know, for somebody to nonviolently pro- protest violence um, is almost considered like this violent act that Colin Kaepernick has done and has inspired this um, really intense backlash. I wanted to read this one passage from the mothers that I thought relates to this, applies to Luke. It's on page 137. He wasn't a big man anymore. He wouldn't be famous like he dreamed as a kid, teaching himself to sign his name in all curved letters so he'd be prepared to autograph a football. He would live a small life, and instead of depressing him, the thought became more comforting. As he adjusted to the smallness of his life, the rehab center floor, Carlos, Aubrey, for the first time, he no longer felt trapped. Instead, he felt safe. I sometimes wonder if Kaepernick feels that way. Yeah, I, I, um, I, there was a great piece on him by Rimbert Brown um, that was sort of this profile on Colin Kaepernick, which again, I think it there's a way in which his life it sort of makes me think about Barack Obama sometimes the sense that um you know Colin Kaepernick grew up in communities of white people like he you know was raised by white parents he lived in a white town um he was really sort of this all-american like Kendall kind of guy 
Um, so the idea that somebody who was raised sort of trusting and loving white people um, later became someone who made everyone made lots of people deeply uncomfortable by the by the statements he was making. Um, you know, it to me it just it adds new dimensions to who he is. Um, and I think the fact that he's not only been willing to risk his career, but has also put his money where his mouth is and, and donated lots of money um, to support causes that he believed in. I think I think it's something that um, is really heroic. And I also think that um, as much as I would love to see him uh, back on the field, I think that in a lot of ways he might end up having a larger impact um, in the culture not playing. Do either of you have any guesses on where the protests go from here in light of what happened this past Sunday? Are they over? Will they continue? Did they achieve their goal? Sugi, what do you say? I I think almost in a way that I I think should have been a cry taken up by other parts of society. I think that some of these things have they've now become Trump protests. And I wish that that hadn't as much as I'm opposed to this current administration, I, I don't want the cause of police brutality to be submerged. I'm a little bit concerned that it's going to remain submerged. So I hope that someone, perhaps Colin Kaepernick, perhaps one of his allies, finds another way to resurface that issue, which I feel like is really getting drowned out. Um, I think that players will continue to protest. Um, I think it will continue to make people uncomfortable. And I think that whether it's the owners or other types of leadership are going to try to find a way to tamp it down. Um, so that's kind of my expectation for this, but, but I agree. I, I, I worry that the initial um, impetus for the protest has been lost. Um, and it became a, we don't like Trump telling us what to do versus uh, we should not kill unarmed black people. Um, so that, that troubles me, but I think um, the optimism I will find in the situation is that I, I think that, um, again, Colin Kaepernick has um, has shown that he was willing to risk everything. There have been more players who have been defending him who didn't stick up for him last year. So there is a way that he's caused um, awareness across, not even just in football, across sports, um, and has sort of launched this conversation. And I think beyond uh, the protest itself, he has um, shown ways to support different organizations, support the youth, support homeless people. Um, so I hope that that will continue to inspire people um, to speak up. All right. Well, um, Britt Bennett, thank you so much for being on this first episode of FNF. And I hope that we can have you back sometime soon. Thanks so much for spending the time. All right. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you. It's wonderful to have you. And that's it for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. Sugi and I will be back with a new episode in two weeks. To get that, subscribe to us in iTunes or through the Literary Hub website. For other books and articles related to today's subject, recommended by our guests, please visit our Facebook page at FNFPod, and happy reading.